Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. everyone. Um, my name is Sharice Trump. I'm the Associate Director of Coalition Relations here at the Heritage Foundation. I'm pleased to welcome you to our webinar today on a strategic blueprint for U.S.-China relations. Uh, welcome to those uh, joining us from our Resource Bank Network, our closest friends and allies and conservative leaders. We are used to convening in person this time of year, um, but we're pleased to offer these substantive discussions and expert analysis through our virtual programs. Welcome to the members of the public as well. Our public programs team has a full suite of robust programming, and you can always find additional public programs on heritage.org forward slash events. Just a few housekeeping notes. Um, this session is being recorded, will be, and we'll be posting it on resourcebank.org in the next 48 hours for your viewing. All attendees are in listen-only mode but we want your questions and encourage you to submit them through the gray question box on the right of your hand side of your screen. Also encourage you to identify yourself and your organization when posting your question. Today's panel is based off of a recent report put out by the Heritage Foundation called Assessing Beijing's Power, a blueprint for the US response to China over the next decades. I'm pleased to have with us the authors of this report for today's discussion. I invite them now to turn on their cameras as I introduce each of them. Dean Chang, is a senior research fellow of our Asian Studies Center at the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. He specializes in China's military and foreign policy, in particular, its relationship with the rest of Asia and with the United States. Dean has written extensively on China's military doctrine, technological implications of its space program, and dual use issues associated with the communist nation's industrial and scientific infrastructure. Walter Lohman is the Director of Asian Studies Center at Heritage, which is our oldest research center established in 1983. Walter also focuses on U.S. relations with its treaty allies in Japan, South Korea, and Australia, as well as with India and countries of Southeast Asia. He is also the leading voice at Heritage on the U.S.-Taiwan relationship, recognizing the strength of America's historical and cultural ties to Europe. In recent years, he has also spearheaded a heritage effort to encourage better coordination um, in all these areas with the transatlantic allies and partners. Riley Walters is a senior policy analyst and economist at the Heritage Foundation's Asian Studies Center. He specializes in Northeast Asian macroeconomic issues, as well as foreign investment, emerging technologies, and cybersecurity. Riley also has previously spent a year in Japan while attending Sophia University. And our moderator today is Dr. James Carafano, who is the pre Vice President of the Davis Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy here at Heritage. He directs Heritage's team of foreign and defense policy experts in three centers on the front lines of international affairs. His research, uh, recent research has focused on developing the national security required to secure the long-term interests of the United States, protecting the public, providing for economic growth, and preserving civil liberties. We're pleased to have you all here today. I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to Jim. Thanks. Thank you. 
so for most of us, foreign affairs is something that happens over there. But for the everyday Americans, this issue may be the most consequential event in, in, in our generation. There's almost no precedent for this. If you think back to the World War II, um, almost every American family was in the war because there were literally 12 million uh, plus men and women stationed overseas. Every father, every son, every mother, uh, you know, daughters, uh, everybody, cousins, brothers, sisters, everybody had family that was in the war. And it was one of the few things that literally touched the life of every American, whether you're making victory gardens or harvesting rubber or reading letters from family far away or following the news. Almost every other foreign, even big crises, are things that don't necessarily seem very close to us. Um, 9-11 was a, 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 a moment when, when the, over there came over here, but there's been nothing like this because literally the relationship between the United States and China uh, touches the lives of everyday Americans in so many different ways. Uh, and that was really the motivation for writing uh, this set of comprehensive recommendations about how do we deal with these relationships to protect the freedom and the prosperity and the... And the uh, uh, and the security of American citizens. What I think is unique about this, uh, uh, our set of recommendations and how it affects the lives of all of us uh, is really that this is different than almost anything else you might have read or seen on this because what we did is we started with, how does China think? What are they trying to accomplish? How do they look at the world? What, where are they going? What are they trying to do? How are they trying to do that? And then we crafted the American response for its political, economic, military uh, diplomacy uh, on that. And, and with a mind to, it's not just about what we do to China, it's about how do we protect Americans. When you're in a competition, you're every bit as interested in protecting the things that are important to you as you are getting the bad guy. If you think of two fighters in the ring, the fighters that are saying, well, how can I land a punch and knock this guy out? But he's also thinking about how can I protect my jaw so the other guy isn't smacking me. So what we want to do is we want to protect and, and embolden and grow and, and enliven the, the freedom and prosperity and the safety of Americans, even as how we think about how do we deal with mitigating the behavior of China, potentially maybe chining, changing Chinese behavior uh, so it's not so destabilizing in the world. So this is what we're going to do. I'm super, super excited about uh, doing this with you guys. Um, we're going to start with Dean Chang because Dean is literally – the foremost expert in the world at understanding the Chinese. Um, obviously, he's, he's fluent in Chinese, but he reads their stuff and he talks to them. And so the first half of the report is really Dean explaining to us what the Chinese are doing. So I think that's a great place to start. Uh, and then after Dean talks, I wanted Riley to talk for a few minutes because where it's really going to impact you and I every day is in the economic competition, because there's so much going on between these two economies that literally anything we do in the political sphere, the diplomatic sphere, uh, even economically, it's all gonna impact potentially maybe in, in, the, in the grocery store or when you go to buy a tel cell phone or something. So I think focusing on that for a bit is really important. And then I wanna bring Walter in to wrap up and talk about kind of do's and don'ts. So we understand what China is trying to do. When we think about how do we respond to that, how do we respond in a way that both protects our freedom and security and prosperity and at the same time, it's meaningful to get the attention of the Chinese leaders to change their behavior or to mitigate the dangers they pose to us 
or to gather friends and allies to work with us to mitigate these concerns. So I think that's a great introduction. And then, and then we're really excited about going from there and talking about the questions uh, and issues that you have, because we're we we uh, we just think that this is this is not a, this is not a flash in the pan issue because of COVID. This is the defining challenge of our generation, and it's going to affect all of us for many many years to come. So with that, Dean, let me ask you to start and talk about who is the Chinese Communist Party and and what do they want. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Carafano, for that uh, introduction. Um, uh, my comments today are going to try and lay out uh, in brief, uh, how does China see the world? Um, let me first lay out the framework, uh, what might be termed Chinese characteristics. Uh, these are the elements that basically define how China and the Chinese Communist Party basically looks at things. First off, China has been the dominant power of East Asia for millennia. And this is very important because unlike our European counterparts, there is no history of balance of power in Asia. And that in turn means that China views its role in its region differently than does a France or a Great Britain or even a Russia. All of the European countries always understood that if they tried to dominate, they would be faced by a coalition of other great powers that would balance them. China has ruled the roost as the central kingdom or the middle kingdom. All of its neighbors always appeased China. They were tributary states. So that's one aspect. A second one is the century of humiliation. China went from the top dog of Asia for thousands of years to a hundred years of being the sick man of Asia, of being laid low. And these were due to both internal factors and external factors. And today's Chinese Communist Party has taken those lessons and said, we must be internally strong and externally strong. And this is one of the reasons why the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, emphasizes things like sovereignty and territorial integrity, and why it lays claim to places like Taiwan and Tibet and you know, oppresses the Uyghurs, because to them, these are all parts of China that no one else should basically have interfere in China's administration of them. This goes to a third point, there is no rule of law. Thousands of years of history never developed an independent judiciary. For China, the law, meaning both domestic law but also treaties, are simply tools to help the CCP get what it wants. And finally, there is no civil society. Nothing is beyond the reach of the Chinese Communist Party. There is no independent religion. There is no role for non-governmental organizations. There is no uh, independence, even in something as mundane as a homeowners association, nothing outside the party. And that has important implications because that means the CCP can employ things like corporations, students, academics, journalists to help gather information or push its strategic message or um, basically try and influence other organizations and entities. China's policy approach is also different. And the two most important elements here is that it has one, persistent policy goals. It's not that China necessarily has a century long plan, but that once it has formulated its plans, once the CCP has really committed to a plan, they tend to remain in place. And there aren't things like presidential or congressional election cycles that can fundamentally alter the direction of things. And this then goes to the other aspect, persistent policy goals are complemented by consistent funding. Programmatic stability 
is another hallmark for the Chinese. When they have made a decision to pursue a program, putting a, a uh, lunar lander and a sample retrieval mission, building a 5G industry, uh, all of these major projects enjoy consistent funding efforts over time, again, which don't change every four years, every two years, because of changes in the leadership. So between these, uh, this framework and these policy uh, setting aspects, what does China want? China, it's important to note, has plans for the post-COVID-19 world. While most of the rest of the world is still trying to get its arms around how to handle the disease, the Chinese very clearly have an idea of what they want the world to look like once we are past that. And some of the key characteristics here, probably the most important, keeping Taiwan in a box. From the Chinese perspective, Taiwan is part of China. Any effort to expand Taiwan's diplomatic space is an attack on China. And that includes uh, pressuring international organizations like the World Health Organization to ignore Taiwan, to not interact with Taiwan, certainly not to seek Taiwan. Second aspect here uh, is in the economic realm, which Riley will talk more about, is maintaining China's place in global supply chains. China is clearly sending a message. They're a good partner. They're a reliable supplier. They have a skilled workforce. They are the workshop. They want to continue to be the workshop for the rest of the world. But when we look at things like Made in China 2025, we see that this is not because China is buying into free trade necessarily, um, although at the moment it is part of the free trade network, but there are elements also of key industries that they want to become dominant in. A third aspect is reshaping global and political norms as well as industrial standards. Chinese businesses, which listen to the state, influence global standard setting, uh, whether in telecommunications or manufacturing, whether aspects, while China's new wolf warrior diplomats seek to define how we think and what we say about China. If you wanna know how China would like to interact with the rest of the world diplomatically, just look at how the Chinese newspapers were censoring uh, a letter from European ambassadors and how Chinese diplomats were able to pressure the European Union's diplomatic corps into altering its fundamental statements. It's important to note in conclusion that China is not out to conquer the world. They're not trying to have occupation forces in Osaka or Seoul, uh, Cleveland or Paris. They want to influence the rest of the world into not offending China. They want the rest of the world to self-censor, to watch what they say to basically not offend China and make that their priority. It's a very different approach to the world. It's going to require a very different American response. Thanks, Dean. Um, so I'll talk about the US-China economic relationship. Um, as Dr. Carafano mentioned, you know, this is this is not something uh, that's just in the flash pan. This is something that's going to develop over the next few years. And at this time right now, I can, I think we can all imagine um, how hard it is to imagine just, uh, you know, all that's going on in the United States, all that's going in U.S.-China diplomatic relationships, that there's going to be a future of U.S.-China economic relations. Um, right now, Americans' views toward China are at an all-time low. Uh, but our optimism on issues like trade are at an all-time high. So how can we balance these two interests? Um, it's an important question we're going to need to figure out because 
the U.S.-China economic relationship isn't going to end tomorrow. It, it's not going to end in a year. It's not going to end in the next few years. Um, and this is this is important to remember. China is not uh, our greatest economic partner. Uh, they, it, it's not like the relationships we have with uh, European countries, uh, with Canada, Mexico, Japan. Uh, trade, which is often the most focused on on the U.S.-China economic relationship, actually only makes up about 11% of U.S. total trade, and that only makes up about 3% of U.S. GDP. So trade with China only makes up about 3% of U.S. GDP, which means the U.S. economy is, is very much driven by what is happening at home. Uh, but that's not to say that the 600 billion worth of goods and services that we trade with China every year isn't significant. Uh, it, it's very significant. Um, I think you know if you think about uh, since the beginning of the year, uh, the U.S. Department of Treasury has collected 18 billion dollars worth in tax revenue from Americans who have paid tariffs on imports from uh, the European Union and, and otherwise, but mostly from China. Um, and this is a cost for Americans, and it's it's important to remember, uh, you know, it's it's important to consider the fact that some estimates suggest that Americans have paid over seven pays over seven hundred dollars uh, uh, per family per year because of these tariffs on China, and that that's a cost for Americans, um, which again seven hundred dollars isn't insignificant per person. Um, as much as we're upset with the Chinese Communist Party right now, uh, you know, its media outlets um, and its media outlets for the suppression of information uh, and the spreading of disinformation around this virus, um, China's economy is still made up of 1.4 billion people. Uh, and that's not something we can ignore. It's, it's why US companies want to be there and it's why US exporters want to sell there. Uh, the whole point of Donald Trump's phase one deal with China is actually to increase U.S. sales to China and to ease uh, and help U.S. firms who are interested in investing within China. Uh, and simply put, uh, if we're not there, uh, someone else will be. Um, so you know, it, the, this does not mean we should ignore the problems that come with dealing with China, of course, uh, and we should not expect uh, our economic relationship to remain the same that it's been over the last 20 years. The United States does have a mix of legal and punitive trade and investment and other tools it, it should be using to reshape the way that we deal with China and Chinese businesses, uh, whether it's sanctioning those who have violated, violated intellectual property rights, uh, making sure that malicious Chinese investment uh, or illicit goods from China can't make their way into the United States, uh, it's also using our trade laws and, importantly, our membership in the WTO to our advantage. And so that's what we've laid out in this report. Uh, you know, as is also what Dr. Carafon was mentioning earlier, the the importance of this report and the importance of U.S. policy going forward shouldn't necessarily be to punish China. It should, I think, be more focused on spurring U.S. competitiveness, making sure that we don't harm ourselves, but making sure that we keep China in line with our laws and enforcing our laws uh, to our best interests. And so with that, I'll, I'll leave uh, leave it open for Q&A after this. Thank you very much. Walker.
Walter, I think you're muted. You want to go ahead? Well, that's not the first time that's happened in the last two months. Um, so, I, so I want to um, I want to come back to where Jim was uh, was on this at the outset. That is sort of where we are on policy development based on all that's been said. Um, very clearly, we're in a long-term strategic competition with China. That is the most fundamental, the most useful thing that this administration has done is recognize that, and and that hasn't been the case until now. What that means is pushing back against Chinese threats to American interests across the board. Um, that's freedom of the seas, that's um, Taiwan's, uh, Taiwan's uh, status quo, um, that's uh, the situation in Tibet or Xinjiang or you know, any number of things where we need to push back threats to the US economy, uh, 5G technology, et cetera. In the process though of doing that, I think we have to, um, we have to bear in mind some things so as not to, as Riley said, hurt ourselves in the, in the process and make the most effective approach to dealing with these things. Um, so I want to just mention uh, three warning points. Uh, the first thing is we need to stay focused on the long term. Okay, so that means pushing back against the Chinese. That means keeping track of what the Chinese are doing and how they're developing and the in this sort of comprehensive threat that they they demonstrate to the world. But at the same time, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So look at some of some of the examples on tech. We have to protect our industries uh, on the on the tech side. We got to protect from a uh, 5G, but we don't want to in the process lose market share in areas where the US dominates, whether it's in semiconductors or semiconductor equipment production, places where we want to stay com competitive. And so as we design the pushback against Chinese, we have to make sure that we are, are paying attention to those things. The, the issue of Chinese studying in US universities, uh, Chinese make a tremendous contribution actually there. And it's one that, that we really don't want to jeopardize. When they're here, they've got to follow the laws and we might have to tighten up those laws, uh, but we want them in our research universities because they're contributing to uh, efforts that not just the United States uses, not just they use, but the whole world does to develop new applications uh, for technology and, and the like. Uh, stock exchanges and that sort of thing is the same sort of issue. Okay, we need to put some limits on where the US government is investing, fine, okay, but you know, there are other stock stock exchanges in the world. If the Chinese can't list in New York, they'll list in Frankfurt, they'll list in Hong Kong, they list in Shanghai, they can list in Singapore. Many of the, their companies prefer to list in Shanghai anyway for, for other reasons. So yeah, they need, to, they need to follow the same rules as everybody else. But again, there are options. Let's not undermine our long-term competitiveness uh, in attracting investment by, by dealing with the Chinese. Uh, the second thing sort of related to this is keeping an eye on the way our own our own economic our own economy develops we're committed to economic freedom at, at heritage free trade um, uh, allowing people to use their capital and their uh, their labor as they see fit i don't want to see that undermined in the process of com competing with the chinese we don't need an industrial policy to deal with the chinese we need to maximize our own advantages, which lie in the area of economic freedom. And then the third thing is, is leadership, okay? We're gonna to have to demonstrate international leadership. That, that means working with a lot of partners around the world, and it means taking their perspectives into account as we develop this. Um, 
most of the rest of the world, the allies that we need are not going to be on board for a new Cold War with the Chinese. And I, you know, serious people are not suggesting that. You know, the people who want to push back on China is not suggesting that. But there are some who are suggesting it. And the truth is, this is just not the take up in the world uh, to to go along with us on that effectively. So let me leave it there, and I leave it to questions and questions and answers. Great. Thanks. So many great questions coming in. These are awesome. Uh, we'd appreciate it more, so please uh, keep asking them. But we we've got a a, a terrific uh, menu already. Um, the Walter's point, I think, is just so crucial, and, and especially Riley, because a lot of the recommendations are economic related, and they focus on what can we do to force people not to do business in China. And I think what, what Walter and Riley are saying, nope, let's turn that on its head. We have the free market, we have free enterprise, let's exploit that. So the first question is, is we should be asking is, why can't people do business here? So rather than saying, why well, you can't do business in China, what are the federal, state, and local regulations and obstacles to people doing business in America. Let's take those things away. Um, we often talk about rare earths, for example, which aren't actually all that rare. Uh, we could mine them in the United States, but we don't because we have environmental regulations that make that economically prohibitive. Do we really need all those regulations? Can we come up with a different regulatory policy so people can mine minerals here in the United States? I think those. that's one. I, the second one is you, we don't have to do business with China we can do business with our friends. And one of the things I like to point out is if you take, for example, India, Vietnam, Bangladesh, say Indonesia, Malaysia, put that all together, that's an industrial base. That's every bit is big, every bit is modernized, every bit is inexpensive, every bit is integrated globally in the world is China. And those countries like us. Um, you know, a lot of, we're seeing a lot of companies already moving from China to Mexico uh, because it's a more secure supply chain. It's better, better. So uh, I, we're to make everything here, I think, nor do we have to, but we should be saying, why we do business with our friends? And the third point, which I think Walter brought up, which is really important, which is transparency. The more we can bring transparency to what the Chinese are doing, the more governments, the private sector, civil society, NGOs can make intelligence decisions. So investing in the market is a good example. So the Chinese want to list in a, in, in a, on a, in a U.S. market, they should have to be all the same requirements as every other listed company. So people can do due diligence on their activities. People should know if there's Chinese manufacturing, for example, that it's using slave labor or other practices. They can decide, do we want to do business with China a lot? So those are the tools that we really think are going to be the most powerful and impactful. So the, the first question, I'm going to cycle back to Dean on this, is what what's up with the Chinese? I mean, so <laughs> there's a lot of bad things we could talk about, but one here is, yes, in, in, in the creation of the global pandemic, the Chinese bear a lot of responsibility. We, we still debate the origins and everything else, but what's indisputable is they let tens of thousands of people leave the country. They knew they could possibly be infected. They knew they would be highly contagious. That, that triggered the global pandemic. There are reporting requirements under international health regulations. They missed those by not hours or days, but by weeks or maybe months. That chewed up all the time that the rest of the world could could have prepared for this. So the Chinese bear major responsibilities for tripping this global pandemic, yet what we see now in Chinese behavior is exactly the opposite. They're not apologizing. Um, they're doing all kinds of things. And, and what do you think is at the root of that behavior? 
Well, I think that one of the things to keep in mind is that Chinese public opinion efforts are always aimed at three audiences. The most important being the domestic audience, the second being a particular target, and the third is everybody else. So the Chinese government uh, under Xi Jinping, it's important to recognize, this outbreak began right on the eve of Chinese Lunar New Year, think a combination of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Uh, in terms of sales, it, it's even bigger than, than Christmas. Um, it occurred in the midst of ending the US-China trade war, um, where China's economy was already starting to slow the rate of increase. So there were a lot of reasons for the Chinese government not to talk publicly, even within China, about a strange new disease that might or might not be highly contagious. Um, the mayor of Wuhan said that he was prohibited from talking about this disease before lockdown. Um, and so 5 million people, they think, uh, transited out of Wuhan. Uh, and that was not just to the rest of the world, but within China. Second of all, as I said earlier, China has a global reputation it's trying to uphold. Um, it wants to have everyone think well of China, which is why they've sent uh, quote unquote aid to a lot of other countries, although often that aid is stuff that had already been paid for by the recipient. And then the third part is um, they are trying to counter an American PR offensive that says China's to blame. And that goes straight to the heart of the problem from the Chinese perspective, which is, oh, no, you don't. We're, we're not, we do not want to have this albatross hung around our neck. Um, so that coupled with a diplomatic corps that really is much more aggressive, uh, there's a reason they're sometimes termed wolf warrior, uh, diplomats, um, is part of this sort of new Chinese approach, which says we're big, we're capable, and you're going to respect us. Okay, so popular culture thing here. Most people don't know where wolf warrior comes from. Uh, Wolf Warrior is the uh, highest grossing non-English language film in history. Uh, there have been two of them. These are Chinese made movies and they basically center around a Chinese special operations guy, think uh, Delta Ranger equivalent, uh, who defeats handily um, American mercenaries uh, who are threatening Chinese citizens. And what's interesting is that at the end of the second movie, you see a picture of a Chinese passport and then you see typed next to it the following message. Chinese citizens, know that your government will always stand behind you. You have nothing to fear. You know, China will be there for you. So this, so is, this, is, this is a whole new attitude. This is not shy and retiring. This is not mumbling into the microphone in bad English. The Ch new Chinese diplomatic corps is basically saying, we are a major power and you will respect us. So on top of everything else, we now have Chinese Rambo to worry about. Yes. So I have a question for Riley. <laughs> so, Riley, so I, I got a great question here about what's the future of the Belt and Road after the COVID crisis? So maybe you could just take a few seconds to explain for people what the Belt and Road is, um, why people are worried about it, and uh, what's next. And I've got a 5G question for Walter. Sure. Uh, so the Belt and Road Initiative is a Chinese outbound investment uh, initiative into developing countries. Uh, it's generally focused mostly on infrastructure projects. So think of your your ports, your roads. Uh, that's where the you know the idea of Belt and Road comes from. It's a combination of these infrastructure projects, transportation for one, some other some other uh, industries as well. Uh, the problem that 
this has been is that for many developing countries, uh, dealing with the Chinese on some of these projects doesn't always turn out into their favor. Um, it's, it's hit or miss a lot of these times. Uh, you know, countries end up taking out uh, bigger debts with Chinese investors than they can actually end up repaying. And so that an issue right now is a lot of these developing countries are having trouble repaying these debts uh, at a time when, of course, the global economy is slowing down. Um, there are some suggestions, though, that perhaps the uh, Belt and Road Initiative is losing steam. Uh, you know, it, when it picked up significantly when the Chinese economy was doing pretty well uh, and when a lot of Chinese investors were looking to get their money actually outside of China, uh, a lot of those winds are shifting. Uh, the Chinese economy is slowing down. Uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party does not want investment leaving China so much anymore. Uh, and so it, it really is a mixed bag. Um, one of the issues that we've had in the past with this is the, the implications it's, it's brought uh, in diplomatic relationships and strategic relationships for, for China, these developing countries, and with the United States. And so um, it, it is likely that we could see it lose some steam over the next couple of years, but uh, the investments that are already made, that are already out there, I think are a bit of a concern. So uh, it'll be up to the United States, it'll be up to international organizations uh, to, to form a solution around, around this issue. Great. So Walter, I can spell 5G, but, uh, and I, I <laughs> can too, but maybe just take a second and explain what 5G is, what it's, why China is such a big issue in that, and, and what are the legitimate concerns that, that people have about letting China build essentially the infrastructure to run a 5G network on? Well, 5G will be, in short, the backbone of the next revolution in information, um, in information technology and information economy. Um, you know, it's any number of things written about it nowadays, and you know, and, and for good reason because it's it's central to moving forward. Um, the concern over it, of course, is that um, if the Chinese are able to build your network out, they will have a unique capacity to uh, tap into information that is uh, being transferred across those those networks and into and into uh, databases where they have no business. And the fact that uh, that Huawei is nominally uh, nominally private uh, doesn't make a difference. It's still uh, it's still founded by uh, you know former PLA. It's still connected into uh, the Chinese um, uh, Chinese government system, party system, and it's answerable to the Chinese uh, the Chinese system. That's one of the most difficult um, the difficult parts of this equation to square is that even this doesn't include Huawei, but but even the most private companies in China still are answerable to really draconian demands made upon them by the Chinese Communist Party and by uh, Chinese law to turn over information uh, when they have it. So yeah, that's the problem is that we would submit ourselves to that technology. The Chinese would gain access to information here, and and the same problem we have with our you know our allies doing it. We have concern uh, for them that they would that they would also expose themselves, but more importantly, from a direct U.S. national security interest, is that the information we share with them, with the Brits or with the Germans or with anyone else, would also be uh, subject to to Chinese. Uh, infiltration. So it's a very difficult, uh, very difficult issue to manage. I think the administration is doing the right thing on restricting 
access to U.S. market in this regard, uh, and for pressuring and for pressuring our allies. Um, gets a little bit trickier on some of the exports uh, export rulings, uh, but as far as protecting our own market, I think they're doing what has to be done. So let me let me go back to Dean on this question for a second because one of the things you would say, okay, so big deal if the if any company has to provide any information to China that they have, which might include our information. Um, we could just encrypt our information, so what's the problem? But but as you've written a lot on, two of China's research priorities are artificial intelligence and quantum computing. So what happened, what's the problem when you tie those things into the, the 5G issue? So it's absolutely essential to recognize that the Chinese leadership, the Chinese Communist Party, sees the world as now having shifted from the industrial age to the information age. Information is now the currency of power. And so access to information, and by information, we don't just mean cyber, we don't just mean hacking and things. We mean everything from Coca-Cola's marketing plans to US war plans to uh, the electric power grid uh, you know, control structure is all things that the Chinese want and actively seek access to. Artificial intelligence, quantum computing, things like that, are major areas of Chinese investment which pose a real challenge both to our encryption if we're not quantum encrypted, and conversely, things that the Chinese may well be able to exploit in order to break encryption. So encryption is not uh, perfect. Second of all, you can learn a lot just by knowing who is talking to whom, even if you don't know what the phone messages are. I mean, you know, if Tony Soprano is talking to, to uh, one of his lieutenants, you may not know what they're talking about, but the fact that they're having that conversation a lot suggests something is going on. And one of the things that we've already seen is China has redirected enormous chunks of the global internet traffic to China. And that's been done even before they have built out the physical infrastructure, the 5G networks, and have hardware in place that may well, be, that may well have backdoors that would also allow them to do this. So basically, allowing the Chinese to build out your 5G network is the equivalent of giving them, you know, even if it's encrypted, it's letting them know where you have bank accounts, where you have credit cards, who you are talking to, and who you're making sales pitches at, even if they don't have the specific. I mean, and, and since lying, cheating, and stealing is fundamental part of Chinese economic warfare, part of that fusion, there is no independent private sector, almost the Chinese government, any Chinese activity is subject to being a tool of the Chinese government, and the more powerful they are, the more, the more interest there on us, great points. So, so many awesome questions. I'm gonna try to combine a bunch of them and um, come back to you guys for one, one more kind of critical question, which is this notion about, let's just bring all our supply chains back home. Uh, let's not do business with China. And, I, and I'd like particularly Walter and, and Riley to, to talk about that. Uh, how, how can we be smart about this uh, in terms of adding to our resiliency? Um, but, uh, but I also just point out that, because this is part of the question that it's not just what the federal government does. It's not just the, at the state, the local NGOs, everybody has relationships with China and one way or another. And we can all self-examine and see, see whether these things are appropriate. So for example, lots of universities still have Confucius Institutes that are funded by the Chinese. Are they doing appropriate activities in your university? Uh, we've, we've seen widespread use of students in universities uh, as either gathering intelligence, uh, recruiting spies, or um, 
uh, or suppressing other students who are saying bad things about China? Are, is your university permitting those activities? Are, are professors not legitimate or on the payroll of Chinese research companies and they're not disclosing that? So in many, many areas, I mean, I think we all have a responsibility to say it's not, it's not that made in China is actually you know, forbidden, but are these activities um, being conducted and we should demand from the Chinese what we demand from every other country. If they're going to come to the United States, they should play by our rules and they should not be here to do malicious activity. Um, but so let's go back to this question about uh, let's just not do business with China anymore. Let's bring all the markets back home. Um, maybe so, just a quick final thought from Walter and Riley and then we'll wrap up. Okay. Um, well, you know, I, I do think that there is a principle here involved and I know that our resource bank allies will appreciate this is that if it's your money you ought to be able to spend it where you want to spend it as long as you're complying with u.s law if you're an american you're complying with u.s law um you know you ought to be able to spend your money how you want whether you're a consumer or, or, or whether you're a business now that also means though, that you have to take responsibility for it so when you invest in china and they require you to um, to turn over your intellectual property, you have a business decision to make. It's wrong for them to do that, and that's something we've got to address with them at the WTO and elsewhere. But at the same time, the companies cannot be absolved for having handed over their technology uh, in, in the process of, uh, of uh, making these sorts of investments. As far as um, sort of reshoring American investment is concerned, um, th those decisions are going to be made, I think, mostly uh, by businesses based on what's best for them. And I think that uh, I think there's some sort of secular trend there, actually, towards the businesses deciding that they need a certain amount of um, of uh, resilience in their supply chain that they did it, depending on the industry. So I think from a business perspective, I think boardrooms are going to be looking for more resiliency and redundancy in in, in, in supply chains, and that will be the most sustainable part uh, of, of, this, uh, of this new move, uh, whether it's back to the United States or whether it's to other places in, right. in Asia or elsewhere. Riley, do you have one quick thought? Uh, yeah, supply chain movements aren't that easy. Uh, that's the quick thought. Uh, the, the longer answer is that the United States is still the most popular place in the world to invest. But for a lot of international companies and companies that have left the United States, it's too expensive to do business here. Uh, that's because of state and federal regulations, whether that's uh, employment regulations, environmental regulations, a whole slew of just different things that make the cost of doing business here a little bit more expensive than it does elsewhere. Uh, well, not a little bit, a lot in some cases, actually. Um, moving supply chains, it will happen. It is happening. Uh, the, the macroeconomic situation in China you know, is is not looking good. Uh, the outlook in the future is diminishing. Uh, Labor is becoming more expensive. Capital is becoming more expensive. And so you see companies in China saying, well, maybe we need to move to Indonesia or Vietnam or India or, or elsewhere. And so um, that is happening, but it's not going to be as simple as saying we should all leave China or we should all come back to the United States. Uh, it's going to be a diversification, uh, just like it's been. It's just the pieces are just going to get moved around on the board a little bit. And so um, I, I think that's where it's going to be over the next few years. Uh, you know, whether some companies diversify their supply chain even more than they already are, that could happen. But we could see a, a simplification in some areas, too. 
uh, because not every business is created equally. The industries are different, and so is the demand. And right. so that's just what's important yeah. to keep in mind. I, I think that circles back to the to the three big points we made is, number one, what can we do to make America more competitive? We actually have a great report at the Heritage Foundation, which I'm sure we can share about how we can increase our own levels of economic freedom here so people can do business here. I think Sharice uh, can share that with you guys. Um, the uh, issue about let's do business with friends and allies, I think you guys emphasize that. You can move supply chains to build redundancy and actually maybe improve your, your profit and your business line. And the third one is transparency. Is, is I think at every level we need to look at these Chinese practices. So for example, we have cases of people letting the Chinese buy onto a board and then the Chinese say, well, we're on your board, now we have to do due diligence, so we have to see all your blueprints and pants and everything else, and then we just take that back to China and use that for our own purposes. So this the point that Walter raised is, doing due diligence with China is part of part of the, the cost-benefit equation. And I think that's very important, not just for the private sector, NGOs, universities, colleges, governments as well. And, and I'll just wrap with this and turn it back to Charisse. You know, we kind of say, you know, when, when we're dealing with China and we want to mitigate the threats and we want to change Chinese behavior, you know, we say, look, we have three rules. One is Job one in America right now is getting the American economy up and running, recovering from this, this COVID crisis, right? We, not, you know, we don't want to risk a depression. If you want to do something about China, you cannot put at risk getting the economy up and running. That's job one. So let's, let's get the economy going first. The, the second thing is if you're going to do things, to, do things that don't make you feel good, do things that actually force the Chinese to pay attention to. Right, so these are things that will actually affect Chinese behavior. Uh, one of the ones you point out is, is we could cut defense spending to help bring down the deficit. That would send a very powerful message to China that we really don't care about defending ourselves. They would actually just get much, much more aggressive. Uh, so um, do things that uh, that don't do things that will harm the American economy. Do things that will actually get the Chinese attention. And, and to Walter's point, do things that are long term. A slap in the face is not going to change how the Chinese act long-term consequential behavior, like holding the WHO accountable, those kinds of things, those will change China. And we think that's, as we think through these federal, state, local, private sector, how we all want to deal with China, we think those are three factors we really need to take account when we work through the next step. So with that, back to you, Sharice. Great, thank you, Jim. Um, thank all of you for your comments today and for all the work you do every day helping lead the conversation for us at Heritage as well as shaping this conversation nationally. Um, thank you to everyone who's joining us for um, and for all of your questions. Please feel free to email me if you have any additional questions. I know we weren't able to get to everyone. My email is shreese.trump at heritage.org. Um, and you know, happy to connect you with any experts as well. Um, we'll be also sending a follow-up email with the link to our report uh, the, for the blueprint on the U.S. response to China, as well as a short survey on today's panel. We appreciate your ongoing feedback with these virtual sessions. And we recently launched a web page um, that is specifically focusing on countering China. So I encourage you all to find all of our reports and articles on this issue at that's www.heritage.org forward slash countering China. And you can find uh, additional programs and virtual programs on our resourcebank.org website as well. So thank you all and um, have a wonderful rest of the day.